The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We welcome you here to the nave of Marsh Chapel on this glorious Sunday morning, and we, uh, we welcome you whether you're here present with us or whether you are listening live over the radio at 90.9 WBUR or on internet signals at WBUR.org. We are grateful this morning to welcome the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, Senior Minister of Christ Church UMC in New York City, who is here to participate in our summer preacher series both this week and the next. We bear greetings on behalf of our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, who is away in these weeks and look forward to his return in August. My name is Brother Larry Whitney, and I have the privilege of serving as University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel. And we are grateful also for our musicians and for the ministry team in leadership here today. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Let us pray. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you. 
and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Dearly beloved, we live in a fractured and broken world, a world in which justice does not always prevail and love does not always overcome. As the choir sings our Kyrie this morning, I invite you to meditate and pray on those places in our lives where we might be voices for greater justice and more love. Lord, have mercy. Dearly beloved, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Meanwhile, as we wait for, that, the for, for the coming of that day, we remember that if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the prophet Amos, chapter 7, verses 7 through 17. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, 
earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from the following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
a lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you, just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading Psalm 82 with the antiphon. has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are God's children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Glory to you, o Lord. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord. Lord. 
You may be seated, friends. A warm welcome to you. Maybe you hear that a lot in the summer, Brother Larry. It's very good to be here with you. Glad for the gracious invitation of Dean Hill and the hospitality of Marsh Chapel. And also a word on behalf of New Yorkers to Bostonians. We have situated yourselves in our hearts over these last months. For here's an obvious thing to say. We live in violent times. Like the persistent background hum of air conditioning on a hot summer night, violence is a constant backdrop to our workaday lives. We generally don't dwell on it, but then sometimes it can't be avoided. Sometimes it just happens. The day of the Boston Marathon brought back a visceral memory of 9-11 for me. I couldn't help it. I was right back there on that day in the terror. And of course, that day spawned two wars, including the longest one our nation has ever engaged. As best we could, we tried to keep the violence over there. But violence is everywhere, of course, not just over there, out there, somewhere else. It's in our communities, in our homes, and if we were to be really honest, we'd have to say that it resides inside each one of us as an inextricable part of our nature. And violence makes for great copy in our media and great fodder for television and film. What would the tabloids have to fill their pages without rapes and murders? We are titillated and repulsed and captured by blood and violence and threat of great personal harm. We're fickle about all of this, aren't we? And violence stimulates endless debates and analyses within a full academic spectrum, including sociology and psychology and anthropology and economic and political theory and so forth. I imagine the walls in Boston University ring with the subject matter of violence. And whether kids with guns, rape in the Sudan, ethnic cleansing, or a simple bank robbery gone awry, experts of every type enter the interpretive conversation to offer opinion and analysis. And notwithstanding variations in cultures and technologies of weaponry, violence has always been a part of human experience. That's one of the great lessons we derive from the earliest chapters of Genesis when Cain slew his brother Abel. Right there, right in the beginning of our sacred story, murder makes a grand entrance, and then it wends its way throughout Scripture, even implicating God himself, herself.
Though we don't usually think of it like this, that famous parable we just heard read for us from Luke is a story about a violent act. That's how it begins, the way a tabloid, tabloid like the New York Post might report the incident. A man was beaten and left for dead on the Upper East Side, Fifth Avenue and 96th Street. No witnesses around saw the event happen. Well, this is how a synopsis of an episode off the internet I drew for Law and Order begins. A body in the Hudson holds the key to judicial corruption. When an unidentified body is found in the Hudson River, detectives search for the identity of this floater. Jesus' version of a TV script begins this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And I say, Jesus knows his audience really well. He knows the human situation, what grabs our attention, which fears animate our anxieties, and which stage set provides for universal identification. Something, you know, life-threatening, some human-on-human violence. The mystery Jesus unpacks doesn't end up having anything to do with the identity of the perpetrators. He is... His is a more closely observed analysis of behaviors addressing a deeper issue, one that strikes at the heart of every sort of violence. You know, friends, we know well that evil and death are real. And doesn't fear join them at all points? We could imagine, for instance, that the priest and Levite who first spot the man bleeding on the roadside are simply motivated by their fear. Fear prompts simple prudence. Why get involved when the risks are so unknown? So one more guy, so one one more anonymous guy gets offed. So another wacko gets away with murder. The world's a violent place. It's terrible, but what's that got to do with me today? And so the story might end like that. But then that isn't the end of the story, is it? There is another ending. Rather than succumbing to the dictates of evil and death, the Samaritan, without so much as a second thought, gives over to the dictates of life. And here we need to remember how Jesus stacked the deck. The Jews considered Samaritans an abomination. The Samaritans, of course, returned the favor. From the perspective of the Jews, the Samaritans were unclean and had abandoned the true practice of the true God. That the Samaritan should be the one to lend aid while the priest and Levite, the religious leaders, pass on the other side, bring this story into sharp relief. This would not have been lost on the lawyer who set out to entrap Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus, I'm supposed to love God. Everybody knows that. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor. But just who is my neighbor when all is said and done? 
And we could update Jesus' answer this way from the perspective of the same geography in the year 2013. If one were a Zionist, he could think of the Samaritan as a Palestinian living in Gaza. And if one were a Palestinian, she could imagine a Jewish homesteader in the West Bank. We get the picture. What is the soft underbelly of our lesser self? Which people do we dislike? And let's face it, we all dislike some. Which people do we dislike, deplore, find abominable, or otherwise have little use for? Are they unregenerate right-wing conservatives or old-fashioned sloppy leftists? Are they enshrouded Muslims, illegal aliens, some uncomely relative even? And here we're invited to bravely name one of our pernicious and insidious prejudices, if we can. Of course, often we can't see what others see so clearly about us. But go ahead, give it a try. Who is often beyond the reach of your simple goodwill? And there we have the Samaritan in the story, the one who spontaneously responds in loving action, despite the risk. When it comes to neighborliness, those human distinctions defined by fear and loathing dissolve in God's laboratory with the solvent labeled love, revealing a mystical human chemistry, the fundamental sacred DNA shared among all people. And although the Good Samaritan is among the very best known biblical stories, the radical nature of this human chemistry lesson is easily rationalized or worse, sentimentalized to a fairly well, in effect made irrelevant to the purported realism of life as we know it and life as we have to live it. All well and good to have a lovely story with a sentimental ending, but that's got little to do with what I've got to do in the world as it is. Yet, as we all suspect, that attitude simply won't do in our world as it is, a violent world, a world often given over to fear and evil and death. And it won't do for anyone with anything close to a heart for God and a longing for eternity. Remember, that's what the lawyer originally asked about. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps he was expecting a lawyerly repartee, a clever theological debate, but here's the kicker. Notice that Jesus didn't say the answer had anything whatsoever to do with proper doctrine. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what the Samaritan did not have. Proper doctrine, proper religious practice and sensibilities. What the Samaritan did have, however, was a heart for the deepest truth evidenced in his doing. There is no debate. There is no hesitation. The third man to walk around along the road that day, the dreaded alien, simply chose to act on behalf of life. Evil and death are real, no question about that, but they do not have the final word, not for those with a heart for God. By his act of mercy, the Samaritan writes a new end to the story. 
His action reveals that the priest and Levite, in their reluctance to respond, are actually conspiratorial with the violence of their day. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and it won't be a band of uh, anonymous robbers who will strip, beat, and hang him from a cross. Instead, it will be a consortium of political leaders, people well-versed in the ethics of their various systems of justice, who out of here and will arrange for his death. And they might just as well then be the ones who, lying in wait, pounce upon their victim and beat him with sticks and clubs, in thrall of the pervasive and seemingly intractable rules of a violent world. For about a year, the church I serve, Christ Church, for about a decade, the church I serve, Christ Church, partnered with faith communities in Ghana, West Africa, in a variety of projects. Whenever a team went over, at some point in their sojourn, they would visit the slave castles on the African coast. These were the point of embarkation for the transatlantic slave trade where tens of thousands were bound and held prisoner, crammed into dank cells before being shipped overseas. I have a vivid memory of standing in the chapel of one of the castles for the first time when a cold chill swept over me when I realized the floor of the chapel doubled as the ceiling for the slave dungeon. The righteous standing on the heads of the abominables, as it were. Surely the story of the Good Samaritan was read there. Inscribed on the chapel wall was a verse of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. And if you look that up, you will find the passage continues with these words. This is my resting place forever. I will abundantly bless its provisions. I will satisfy its poor with bread. This experience remains one of the most powerful and disturbing metaphors of my ministry. And now the lesson is clear, isn't it? It's very clear, very simple, and very searing. Searing because it cuts into the heart of any one of us that chooses to listen hard with no doctrine to hide behind. Searing because the same inability to see what is right in front of our eyes remains as one of the enduring problems for people of faith. On his way to Jerusalem, the one who will offer his own life as an act of ultimate mercy tells a story of some others going about their business. Persons 
not so unlike ourselves going about our business, who come across a desperate man, and one of them, the last one, despised by the others, responds in love for his neighbor. Who was his neighbor? Why, the anonymous bloody man on the side of the road. It could have been anyone, everyone. Indeed, for Jesus, it was for everyone. Yes, yes, but at the end then, Jesus, what is the point of it? And Jesus answers simply, clearly. Go, do likewise.
We now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling at the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. join me in saying the prayers of the people responsibly. I will lift up a petition of prayer and will end it by saying God of love and mercy, in which case you will say, Lord, hear my prayer. Please join me in whatever way you feel comfortable. Beautiful, creative God, we come to you this morning lifting up prayers for the parts of our lives that seem darker without you. We pray for the world for the struggle, strife, and poverty that plagues it daily. We pray for countries in turmoil, Egypt, Sri Lanka, Iraq, Sudan, Lebanon, and Syria. We pray for the deadly floods and mudslides in China, the storms in the Caribbean, and the extreme heat in the United States. As we think of our brothers and sisters across the globe, May we be reminded of our interdependence and our bonds of humanity. God of love and mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for our own nation, a nation founded on values of peace and justice. We pray for our political and social leaders as they guide us into the future. May they have the courage to work for peace. We pray for harmony amidst political differences and understanding in times of disagreement. We pray for those who dutifully serve our country, for soldiers, for nurses, for teachers, for social workers, doctors, and farmers. May we all find ways to create a home in this place and to share hospitality with all we meet. God of love and mercy, Lord. We gather today to pray for our very own city of Boston. We ask for healing and comfort as we continue through the motions after the wake of tragedy. We give thanks for sunshine and breezes that make the summertime come alive amongst us. We pray for our city that it may thrive, grow, and become a beacon of hope for all who live and visit here. May we be grateful for all that we have and all that we can give. 
God of love and mercy. We ask especially, O oh God, for prayers for the community here with us in Marsh Chapel, for those with thrilling and tiresome tasks of welcoming new life and birth. We pray for those who find themselves in dark places, mentally, spiritually, and physically, for our ill, infirm, and deceased in this community. We remember them now as whole. We pray for those who feel lonely, frustrated, or depressed, for those who can't find work, and for those who are utterly overworked. May we look into each other's faces and offer compassion and love to each person we see, God of love and mercy. Creator God, you are mother and father to us. Both are strength and shield. We now are called to pray as Christ taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you once again here to the nave of Marsh Chapel and hope you will participate in our rit ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We note that following the service, those interested in the abolitionist chapel program here at Marsh Chapel will meet today for a complimentary lunch uh, immediately following the service. You can meet in the narthex with uh, the Reverend Victoria Gaskell and go to lunch from there. Uh, we are grateful once again to the Reverend Stephen Bauman for his presence with us this Sunday morning and look forward to what the Spirit will speak through him again next Sunday. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we invite you to meditate upon Palestrina's setting of the Sanctus and Benedictus from the Misa Eterna Christi Munera. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
gracious and ever-present God, accept these gifts for your service and keep us ever mindful of who our neighbors are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good friends, God has assigned us an astonishing, world-changing agenda, that we are to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. Something so simple, so radical as that will indeed change the world. And that is our task together. We go out into the world with God's great blessing. And remember that in every circumstance, you are held and cared for at all times, be thankful and grateful and go forth with a confident expectation that you are blessed beyond your wildest imaginings. Thanks be to God. Amen.